Welcome to the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and Dr. Bob. We are here for another exciting episode. I'm actually really excited about this episode because we have another special guest. We were lucky enough to have a county supervisor with us last time um, earlier in the week, and we are very excited today to talk to Dr. and Senator Scott Jensen from Minnesota. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is super exciting, Scott. And you're a fellow physician. Melissa's going to introduce you, tell everyone who you are. But I'm excited to talk to a, a physician who's um, also in the government. And it'd be interesting to get your perspective on the COVID crisis. But yeah, Melissa, why don't you let everyone know who Scott is? And he gave us permission to call him Scott instead of Senator Jensen or Dr. Jensen. Well, what Dr. Bob's saying here is he's not that excited to talk to me because I'm not a physician. So he's really happy that there's a physician talking to him now because I just bore him with my mom credentials. So let me give him some good credentials here. Senator Scott Jensen, who's also a family practice physician. Um, Interestingly enough, According to the Minnesota Academy of Family Physicians, you won at one time Doctor of the Year, which is quite a nice title there, and that you're member and chair of the Waconia School Board. I I hope I pronounced that correctly. Also a physician and also a clinical associate professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So I'd love for you to kind of give our listeners maybe a little background um, on you and and some things that, because since I didn't include much, I'd love to know kind of what brought you to this point. I'd be glad to. I grew up in a little town in southern Minnesota called Sleepy Eye, and I was the middle child of five. My dad was my hero, uh, albeit somewhat intimidating, and my mom was my best friend. Mm. I uh, went to college, and unfortunately, in my first year of college, uh, my mom came, came sick with our colon cancer and died within a year. Mm. So I went, I went to uh, dental school first and was president of my dental school class and uh, had a very good year, enjoyed the biochemistry and the anatomy very much, but I just didn't really fall in love with teeth. So I did the <laughs> logical thing. I decided to uh, step back from dental school, and so I went to the seminary for a year, and that was a wonderful year. I made two big decisions. One was that I was going to go into medical school if I could, and the other one, I was going to ask my girlfriend if she would marry me. And so she and I have now been married 42 years. And I got into medical school and I went into family practice. I practiced 15 years uh, uh, in a larger clinic. And then I decided to uh, break off and start my own because I really like medicine upfront and personal. I like the idea of having the patient feel very very confident that they're in charge and they're the champion of their own health care. They would look at me as a resource. I tell many of my patients that if there's a professional golfer in this room and there's a caddy in this room, I'm the caddy. My responsibility is to tell my patient that there's a sand trap on the left and there's a water hazard on the right, but the, the patient's the one who has to take the seven iron out and hit the ball on the green. And I really think that's the way healthcare works best is when patients are personally invested and they're saying yes to decisions. And if I'm offering something that doesn't quite fit with their program, then they would just say, Doc, that just doesn't work for me. I appreciate your offer of maybe some Lipitor to lower my cholesterol. But quite frankly, both my mom and dad lived to be 95, and my grandma's still alive. So I'm going to pass. And I think that that's where I'm at. And so I've now practiced medicine 35 years plus, and I really enjoy it. About five years ago, I was recruited to run for Senate. I said no for about two months, and finally uh, it seemed to my wife and I that the good Lord was telling us that this was something we're supposed to do. Uh, 
and I went ahead and ran and I was elected. I was flattered to receive more votes in Minnesota than any other state senator in that, than any other Republican state senator in that election. And wow. that was flatter, flattering. And so I've been serving as vice chair of the HHS committee and I carried legislation on transparency in healthcare and also uh, pharmacy benefit managers and also an insulin assistance program. Those are some of the bigger bills I carried. And then with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, I've been called on and tapped quite a bit to speak to a lot of the issues associated with COVID-19. Well, that's great. And and I'll tell you, the first time I knew about you was after seeing a a news network that was local. This was before it was on Fox News, where you were discussing, and I think I mentioned this to you in an email, you were discussing how death certificates were being coached, basically, and how they were recording. And this whole COVID pandemic has obviously become the you know complete topic of discussion in every household in the country because we have something that was essentially an initial two-week lockdown that's turned into a several-month lockdown. We have a whole series of unintended consequences that have come as a result of this, and we have the fear of the actual virus. We have data. We have conflicting data. We have um, you know some elements of government overreach and local um, government fighting now with state government, which is fighting with national government. This has become a very, very big topic, um, one that I started covering back in February when the data just did not seem to add up to me. And so I saw you on this local news network and you were discussing this and you were giving really good facts. In fact, I shared a part of that video because you were validating what I said um, and what I had been saying and talking about mortality rates and things like that. One of the things I really like that you've mentioned before is that you talk about yourself as a guy in the trenches and Talking about that, I think, is so important because as a doctor who's also in politics, being somebody who is in direct contact with patients, and it's, it's more of that boots on the ground, right? Being there in the trenches makes a difference in the, the way that you view policy, the way you create policy, and the way that you see the needs of citizens being um, required or being met or not met. So when you use that phrase, what does that mean to you? And why do you think that that gives you kind of a unique perspective as it relates to your role in politics? I think sometimes physicians fall into a trap of sort of operating at a 30,000 foot view or a 30,000 foot level. And I really think patients want physicians to come right down to that ground level for them and just talk with them so that they can understand things. I think one of my biggest jobs is to help share information with patients. If all I have to offer is pills or a scalpel, I don't really think that I would want to see that kind of a doctor. And so when I say that I'm in the trenches, uh, I'm trying to walk alongside my patients and trying to ask myself, how would I want to be cared for if I were in this situation, if the roles were reversed. I want to make sure that I offer the options of what medications or what surgeries may or may not be available. But I want to do more than that. I want to make sure that the patient gets a reasonable understanding of what the problem is. And when we do that, then I feel like there's a real shared interest in trying to get the best outcome. So for me, being in the trenches is really important. And then the other thing I I try to bring to the table is I am an unabashed skeptic. I think that a lot of what we do in Western medicine is good, but we really, as physicians, buy into 
what we've been taught. And sometimes I don't think we realize how brainwashed we become. Mm-hmm. And medical school is a powerful experience and I would, I would not trade it for anything, but I also would not go through it twice because the, the power of your professors uh, at that young stage of your life and you so desperately want to be a good doctor and you so desperately want to get through medical school and become the physician that you've dreamt of becoming for years, that has a powerful if you will, narcotizing kind of influence on us. And a lot of physicians, they're very smart, but they just don't realize that sometimes they buy into certain narratives that they don't even realize. When we see doctors who become legislators, they become the experts on all things medical. You've probably seen that in in your state. We know that that's happened in California. For example, as it relates to all the vaccine mandates that we've been involved with, there is one doctor, which is Richard Pan, who's a senator, who basically is the the solitary expert on all things medical as it relates. Yeah, all medical legislation in our state. Right. And when it comes down to these bills that come forward, and he's authoring a lot of these bills, He's making decisions for everyone based on his medical expertise. But again, he's not in a position where he's in the trenches with patients. He's not seeing children and their parents and understanding these particular concerns. He's literally talking about this from a theoretical perspective. He's talking about this from a regulatory agency perspective, which is a lot different, in my opinion, than the actual in-person, in-practice experience. And I, I feel like that can be potentially a little bit dangerous because you have the expertise of the doctor, but you don't really have the actual practical experience of, like you're saying, what, what your patients are really dealing with and, and suffering through. And I think that there might be false weight maybe being given to those who are in politics that carry things like this and that is that can push their their bills and their legislation a lot further because of the degree, because of having that medical degree, but not necessarily being in touch with the mm-hmm. constituents, which are who right. they're supposed to represent. Right. You make a good point. I think the the power and authority that might be given or given over to someone because they are the person most identified as who could understand such and such, it, it, it becomes a little intoxicating. I think power can intoxicate. I think absolute power can corrupt. Mm-hmm. But I, I, we hadn't had a physician in the Senate in Minnesota for 25 years. And when mm-hmm. I was elected in 2016, uh, I had the good fortune of being elected right alongside of another physician who's a Democrat, and I'm a Republican. So we have the balance. And he works in a hospital, a large hospital, as a hospitalist. And I work in a primary care clinic. And I think there's been a good balance between the two of us. I would say with some disappointment that COVID-19 has absolutely strained our relationship. Mm-hmm. And that makes me a little sad. It's it's an honest strain, though. His perspective is different than mine. And that doesn't mean that uh, uh, mine is wrong and his is right or vice versa. It just means that it is what it is. So he'll have a different perspective because as someone in a hospital setting, he's taking care of very sick people. And me in a clinic, I'm oftentimes involved more with people's health care maintenance, parent choices, Uh, children coming in to see me. And then we start to talk of the fact that a lot of the medical matters that come to my attention, we have choices. 
we could do this or we could do this, and both are reasonable. I think in the hospital setting, when you're a hospitalist, oftentimes you'll have an algorithm or you'll be a little bit more of a, this pathway is what we're going to follow, and then we'll be ready to flex and be nimble if we don't get the response from the patient that we're hoping for. So to your point, I think that if you are sort of bequeathed the expertise in a, in a body and there's nobody there to contest mm-hmm. your perspective, I could see where that could be dangerous. Certainly Dr. Klein and I in the Minnesota Senate have at times parried back and forth some, most of the time in a good natured fashion, but there have been times where it gets a little intense and we've both been a little frustrated with one another, mm-hmm. but I think that's probably healthy. I noticed, I don't know if you're familiar with the two Bakersfield field doctors that came out, you know, about yes. a month ago, right? Yeah. So they came out. And yes, did I press- saw their video a couple times. Right, which also to- validated the same kind of stuff that you had said, I had said about mortality rates and about the economy opening up and no real risk there. Um, but what's interesting is they mentioned people like Dr. Fauci, who are the, we're talking about maybe the national quote unquote expert, medical expert, uh, according because of these White House pre- press briefings. And what they said was, he is like an academic you know, he hasn't seen a patient in over 20 years, and that we've got people dictating policy as medical experts who are not in contact with people in the way that we think of medical experts. Right. In fact, they're instead in, they're in conference rooms having discussions about, you know, medical, uh, what's in medical practice, not so much in real life. And I, and I thought it was interesting that these ER doctors brought that up. And then, of course, that video ended up being taken down by YouTube for violating policy, is what they said. Um, and essentially, they were censored, giving complete you know, database information as they found it. I think Dr. Fauci has had a celebrated career, to be sure. But I would agree that he has become, if you will, an administrative public health kind of physician and somewhat of an academician mm-hmm. versus an in-the-trenches kind of guy. And I think the two uh, doctors you're talking about, Dr. Dr. Erickson and Dr. Mahisi, mm-hmm. I think they're both in the trenches doing their own thing, staying nimble. When they decide to do testing, they can go out and do testing and they can do what they want with their data. And I, I think that's what was so refreshing about what they uh, brought to the table. I actually sat on a panel with them uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was enjoyable because I think that if you will, they're just regular people. And I like to think of myself as a regular kind of person as well. So I think with Dr. Fauci, I think that to be fair, uh, it's not an easy job. But on the other hand, I think that some of his comments have been at times, perhaps in retrospect anyway, a little indiscreet. I think it was in January he was saying, this is not going to be a significant problem for Americans. You don't have to concern yourself with it. And then in February, I think he told people at the end of February, you can go on a cruise. Don't worry about that. If you're healthy, you go on a cruise. And then in March, he came out and he said, there is no such thing as a deployable vaccine in less than 12 to 18 months. I just think that in the position he's in, it's important to be measured. And if you're going to, if you will, just sort of shoot from the hip, You need to be careful and let people know that you're shooting from the hip. Having said that, I think I am guilty at times of shooting from the hip. Sometimes the media enjoys that because some of the things I say are a little bit more exciting (laughs) than sometimes the drab kind of, oh, here comes, you know, Dr. Boring. Scott, I'd like to know, you know, I'm fascinated in in Minnesota. You guys have an interesting uh, situation in your legislature. You have a, a Democratic governor 
and there is a Democratic majority in the House, but there is a Republican majority in the Senate. And, and I'm interested in that because in California, it's a Democratic majority in all three of those locations. And so I, I'm, I'd like to know if you see your state's COVID response um, kind of being divided down like uh, on party lines. Um, I'm sort of curious about what kind of conversations you're having with your Republican colleagues versus your Democratic colleagues. Is everyone's totally divided on party lines or do you see people crossing over? Do you see a lot of Democrats kind of maybe seeing more of your point of view or maybe even listening to you because you're you're a doctor with the, the Republican Party? I'm just kind of curious about that dynamic. Well, I think the dynamic in Minnesota is there is a certain amount of Minnesota nice. And so I think uh, Senator Dr. Klein is listened to clearly by his Democratic colleagues, but I think he's also listened to by my Republican colleagues. He speaks with uh, with wisdom and knowledge, and so I think that he's definitely listened to by both sides, but clearly the Democrats would favor more of what he has to say. And I think the same could be said for me. I think that the Democrat colleagues I have have been very respectful and they've asked me questions and they've listened to me and they've heard me out and uh, it's been fun working with them. And, but certainly my Republican colleagues will go to me for many, many things. Uh, sometimes they'll even go to me for medical matters if they've got uh, something they want to talk about in regards to a medical problem. I think that one thing that really does frustrate me, and again, I tend to be on the candid side is because we have uh, emergency peacetime powers in place and the way our constitution, uh, excuse me, it's really not our constitution, the way the statutes in our laws in Minnesota are written, once the governor declares an emergency uh, peacetime situation, he can renew every 30 days as long as we're in session, we don't have any veto power over it. He simply needs to have the approval of the executive committee in the state of Minnesota, which is the constitutional officers, and all of them are Democrats. So he's going to get their approval pretty easily. And then the only way that it can be adjusted otherwise is if both the House and the Senate vote to end the peacetime emergency. Hmm. Again, that's not going to happen very likely if the governor doesn't want it to happen because the Democratic House will make certain that they stand with the governor. So the Republican Senate feels somewhat, if you will, uh, trapped. And so we haven't been able to accomplish necessarily that kind of partnership with the governor. The governor can act unilaterally and we can stomp our feet and throw a tantrum, but we're not going to really be able to affect change. And I think that that's that's been a huge issue for us is the fact that a Democratic governor and the Democratic House can preserve and continue the peacetime emergency powers Mm -hmm. indefinitely. Yeah, and that's got to be frustrating. Something I find fascinating is to me, it seems like medical advice and and medical truths shouldn't have a party affiliation. It seems like there should be one primary answer in a crisis if you're going to make that decision based on medical data and medical research and, and sound you know, medical decision-making. And, and so I, I kind of find it so fascinating with uh, governors across the country 
having very different responses to this crisis. And I mean, to me, I don't know, it sounds like maybe you agree with this, but kind of my basic opinion on COVID is, is or, you know, thank God that it's mild for almost everyone who's young and healthy with some outliers where someone, you know, will get seriously ill from time to time. It's more severe for the elderly, especially with underlying conditions, as you, you know, may be seeing in your own practice. Um, and, but, and it's, it's, it's somewhat contagious, but it's not nearly as contagious as other diseases are. So it's not going to like rampage through our country and, you know, hit, hit everybody left and right. So it's almost like there should be a right answer that medical experts you should be able to agree on. So I guess it, it boggles my mind why Republican governors and, and senators and legislators are getting, you know, medical advice from their experts on one end. And the Democratic uh, governors are getting medical advice from their experts. That is almost the polar opposite. Um, and I just I, I find that dynamic very frustrating. I'm sort of see, wondering what you're seeing in your state, you know, along this regard. I think your point is well taken. I experience frustration as well with the fact that there's polarized opposites when it comes to opinions. But being in the Senate has taught me that the amount of information and the amount of perspective that's available to choose from is enormous. Mm -hmm. And social media makes it even easier to choose or find what you want to pick from. So whether or not we like it or not, Dr. Bob, it is literally our new reality that you are going to have Republican administrations select Republican sources of information and quote Republican experts and vice versa with Democrats. And that's where we're at. I mean, you literally can see these kinds of decisions made across the land. If you've got a Democratic legislature or a governor, you have a much, much greater chance of seeing lots of masks being worn, regardless of whether or not the cotton or the surgical mask makes any sense in regards to actually filtering particles as small as 0.1 micron, which is what the covoid particle is in size. The masks that they're wearing are designed to filter five micron particles more like bacteria like staph or strep mm -hmm. and that's why we wear them in surgery so that we don't inadvertently cough or sneeze onto our surgical field and spray strep or staph onto our surgical field but this this is not what's happening in some states in other states where you have a republican uh, majority or a republican governor you'll see less masks it's almost become a label in minnesota here a few weeks ago we had the vice president uh, Pence come out to celebrate Mayo Clinic's very aggressive initiative in terms of trying to help the COVID-19 response effort. And Mayo Clinic, of course, is a remarkable institution. Mm -hmm. But the story that was written was that Vice President Pence chose to not wear a mask mm -hmm. while other people in the rumor, and this was splashed all over Minnesota newspapers. Right. How disappointing. Right. I mean, we're talking yeah. about something that if you look at the science of masks mm -hmm. and you start to understand the fact that bacteria can be seen under a microscope and are approximately five microns in size and can be filtered by a surgical mask, but viral particles cannot be seen in the microscope. You have to use an electron microscope. They're 0.1 to 0.2 microns in size. And then you share with 
your audience that the smallest thing that the naked eye can generally see is the width of a hair, a human hair, which is about 100 microns, or the tiniest speck of sawdust, which is 50 microns. And when you start to look at the context, then I think you can start to see, gee, this really doesn't make a lot of sense, but I guess from an emotional, psychological perspective, it makes people feel better. Hmm. And yet you've got policymakers making decisions, mandating these types of behaviors that may or may not have a medical basis. That's why I have said numerous times, science has been sacrificed at the altar of panic over Hmm. and over again. And it's going to take a resetting of our anxiety level for us to step back and once again engage with science. That's going to take some time because we've got media just hungry for information. So the science that came out regarding transmission of viral particles out of Europe, which was quite good, was too reassuring, I think, for some American sources. So what did we see? We saw a different science come out where all of a sudden – It wasn't six feet that would be necessary for social distancing. But if someone was huffing and puffing or running or walking rapidly in a park, you should stay 32 feet away from them. And you start to wonder, folks, let's just take a breath. It's not that bad. And at the end of the day, where I really land, and I know I'm going on a little here, but one, one of the issues I think is most critical, and we have only ourselves to blame, is that we have allowed ourselves to be so insulated from death that Americans don't realize that 9,000 people die every day. Every day. That we have 10,000 births every day. When we start to look at that, when we look at the fact that in 2018, we had 80,000 people die of the flu. And right now we're at perhaps 85,000 deaths if you count one number. Otherwise, it would be a little less than that. But the bottom line is we have have 50,000 people in the United States commit suicide every year. We have three to 400 physicians that commit suicide every year. We have 70,000 people die every year of drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. We have, I think, something like 100,000 people that die in accidents or more. We've insulated ourselves and we've allowed that insulation to scare us. And so when we hear that the fatality rate might be 0.3, three times the normal 0.1 with flu, uh, we sort of freak out, not realizing that what that 0.3% means is that three out of a thousand people, which means that one out of 333 people will die. And we know that of those you're literally talking 98% plus will be people that are generally elderly, frail, yes. with underlying medical conditions. Right. So, we, But we don't think rationally about it. And when we get on the other side of this pandemic, I'm hoping that we can have thoughtful, bipartisan conversations and talk about this. Because right now, we are so divided. And mm-hmm. in our division, we don't talk. We hold one another in contempt, if you mm-hmm. dare to disagree with me. Oh, yes. And this has really fractured the dialogue. There's, there are so many conversations that aren't happening. And then I get on some media thing, and someone rips me and says, you must be a th- conspiracy theorist. And I say, why do you say that? Well, I saw something that you said 
on this webpage. And I said, I've never even heard of that webpage. And they said, well, you were on it. What are you going to do about it? I said, well, what could I do about it? There's a webpage called InfoWars I never heard of. And they said, you're on InfoWars. And I said, yeah, big deal. They said, well, aren't you going to say something? I said, I don't even know who they are. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe it's owned by my mother-in-law. I don't know. (laughs) She's out to get you. (laughs) But I just think this is, this is the the circumstances in which we live. And I, I, I hate to be trite, but I think if there's a way that we could just press pause and take a chill pill and say, we can disagree. And we don't have to be mean-spirited. And then if we can just add just a titch of kindness, a titch of thankfulness, and if we do happen to lose our temper, let's try to lose it for just a little bit and try to regain that that equilibrium so that we can once again re-engage with people and have the conversations we need to have. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, exactly what you're saying is basically our in- entire intention behind starting the podcast that we have, which was to discuss and have more transparency in the very taboo and controversial vaccine debate. This The, the same idea of it's so polarizing. It's so hateful. There is so much division. And it would be really nice if we had more compassion and more understanding and a more open dialogue between parents, between doctors, between the public, between with the media involved, and really talked about something that's a little more complex than I think people understand. And so I totally under, you know, understand where you're coming from on this. We feel the same way. And that's part of why when this whole situation started, I saw the parallels immediately to what we've already been working on and working with for the last five years as it relates to you know mandated medicine. And, you know, I liked what U.S. Senator Tim Scott had to say in the Senate hearings uh, where he talked about, you know, when quarantine originally started, we we never agreed to this to prevent 100 percent of deaths because that's impossible. It's unrealistic and it's impossible. And I think just to your last point about people being basically afraid of death and not really having the perspective of how many people die every single year. It's like they want to prevent 100% of deaths, which is just completely impossible. And we know that over 50,000 people on any given year are dying from respiratory viruses, pneumonia, things like that. And nobody was offering to stay at home. Nobody was demanding others stay at home and nobody was wearing a mask. And as you're very familiar with, we were literally surround, we're constantly surrounded by thousands of different viruses bacteria and nobody's thinking about it and so now that we have this hyper focus on it everybody has become extremely extremely freaked out and and become these you know germaphobes everybody's afraid to even take a walk outside without a mask and i saw somebody today with gloves and a mask walking outside by themselves (laughs) in their neighborhood and you wonder where the rationality comes in this with the data being as it is, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions the public has about the medical data? So let me identify perhaps three large misconceptions. Okay. One is that this is that, that this pandemic in which we're ex- we're existing in today is this huge lethal killer. It's not. We don't have a fatality rate like we did with SARS at 10%, right. MERS at 30%, Ebola at 50%. So that would be one thing that I would tell people is if you get this, there's a 40 to 50% chance you might not even know you had it. Right. If you get this and you do know you have it because you have some symptoms, the symptoms are probably going to be that that level whereby you'll skate right through this. If you happen to be in that 5 to 10% where it's a significant illness, the likelihood of you having 
a life-threatening issue from this if you are under the age of 65 and healthy is exceedingly small. So that would be one in terms of trying to put things into context there. The second we've already talked about, the masks are not what we're making them out to be. Mm -hmm. But I think the third one is the idea that the goalposts should be moved. The goalposts initially were depress the peak and delay the surge so that we could help our healthcare facilities Mm -hmm. ramp up so that they wouldn't be overwhelmed. So there are two goals. One, depress and delay. And two, ramp up hospital capabilities, including PPE, ventilators, staffing, ICU beds, these kinds of things. We've done that. We're past that, actually. We have had projections where we're going to need so many beds, and we haven't gotten anywhere near that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that when we start to allow people to move the goalposts and say, we're going to try to depress the number of cases as low as possible. That is not what we should be doing. We need to recognize that this battle is going to be won inside our own bodies Mm -hmm. by our own immune systems. Now, if we get a vaccine at some point, there's a good chance that that would come alongside and support the efforts of herd immunity that will develop. But we do have to remember that with vaccines, these are not like getting a shot of penicillin in your butt. This is a medical intervention. This is prompting an immune response that you're hoping for a specific reaction on the part of the body. Mm -hmm. In 1976, when we did this and we had President Jerry Ford getting his vaccine on public TV, that program had to be shut down within a month or two because of the number of Guillain-Barre cases French polio that were associated with the vaccines. And that program was never restarted. So vaccines are an intervention. Yes, they can be wonderful. They help eradicate polio. They help get rid of smallpox. But not all vaccines are are equal. Some vaccines are targeting relatively benign illnesses. Mm -hmm. So why would we do that? And if we're going to do that, we would never want to do that as a state-determined choice. It has to be a parent choice, a patient choice. And if we're parents of children, then parents make choices for children. It has to be a choice because it's not just giving someone a Tylenol. It's inducing a response and expecting a response. And with that comes risk. That's obviously exactly what we stand for as well. On that note, there's been talk about the virus potentially mutating and being an annual or seasonal virus, in which case the vaccine would have to change every year. Uh, Bill Gates, in his personal blog that discussed the virus, I mean, the vaccine that he wants to create for 7 billion people to all have, he talks about the vaccine will probably only give two to three months worth of protection. Um, As it relates to the vaccine, what do you think of as far as the potential efficacy to begin with? And then also, what about this idea that it might be mandated in order for people to be able to go to work or for children to go to school? What do you think the medical basis is for that? Well, I think that uh, Bill Gates' comment about potentially uh, vaccine-inducingly a two- or three-month period of immunity, uh, if that were the case, I would say that that's a vaccine that for a a mild respiratory uh, condition uh, would not be worth even uh, fielding, if you will. Mm -hmm. I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even do that. I think that you, you, we are going to have to compare whatever we have to the influenza vaccine, which has been woefully inadequate. Uh, Dr. Mike Osterholm is a relatively well-known epidemiologist who 
quite some time ago made the comment that the flu vaccine isn't very good, but it's the best thing we've got. Mm -hmm. And that's an odd way to make a recommendation about something. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's out there. Now, having gotten to the point that you asked about in terms of uh, mandatory vaccinations in order to go to work or things like this, I've actually introduced legislation in Minnesota to make that illegal because we did have in one medical facility in Minnesota a couple of years ago, uh, I think there was about 50 people that were discharged because they weren't willing to take a flu shot. And I think that's horrendous. I just personally do. I think that choice was absolutely obliterated and that's not who we are as Americans. Now I understand there'll be people that would just ridicule me for saying that, Mm -hmm. but I would simply remind them of this. I'm entitled to my opinion. Mm -hmm. I happen to be a big believer that as an American, as an adult, I get to make my own choices unless my choice is specifically and if you will, somewhat directly putting you or someone else in harm's way. And if someone wants to get a vaccine, go for it. But I'm not preventing you. But don't tell me what I have to do unless there's clear causality that my decision is somehow infringing on your rights. And generally with vaccines, we don't have that kind of a situation. Right. And you've mentioned on the original uh, video that I actually saw of you, and this is something that's been used in the vaccine debate as well, you've mentioned fear as a motivator for the public and that sometimes you'll see policy changes and the media, you know, using fear as a way to get things passed, a way to get the public on board to maybe give up their freedoms in a time they would otherwise not be doing that. Do you see that happening Here's the common formula. Here's the formula we use. We use it in politics. uh, We use it in the media. And unfortunately, sometimes we use it in medicine. But the first thing you do is you instill fear. Once you've done that, then you let that percolate for a little bit. Then you tell them who to blame. Then after you've sort of directed their target as to who to blame, then you foment a little bit more fear, turn up the heat a little bit. Then, and only then, do you step forward and say, just follow me, I will take care of you. With you never having presented any ideas or done any brainstorming, because you might be criticized for that. So the formula is, Fear, blame, more fear, follow me, I'll save you. And we do that all the time. And, and that's exactly what's happening uh, with some of these situations. Yeah, so in your um, Democratic uh, majority state, um, especially with the governor, what do you think the political motivation would be uh, you know, for a Democratic governor to prolong the shutdown and to you know, ramp up the fear? Like, I mean, since you're right there in the trenches and the politics of this, what do you think their motivation is or what do you think their end game is? Re-election and getting a majority in the political party. And one of the best ways to do that is to be able to show that you did everything the best. You, and so how are we going to measure the best? Are we going to measure the best by the least number of cases, the least number of COVID deaths, the lowest percentage? And those are the kinds of things that, that politicians will do. I think that sometimes we get into our echo chambers and we sort of, without realizing it, get in, uh, if engrossed or captivated by a groupthink. And I think sometimes this echo chamber that we're in, all of a sudden, all we're looking at is just the COVID-19 death count, mm-hmm. just that nifty dashboard mm-hmm. that comes out every day. We forget to look at maybe the economic dashboard 
Right. We maybe forget to look at the mental health dashboard. We're not counting the increase in suicides, anxiety, the hotline for abuse, the depression. We're not looking at the deaths and diseases that come from the desperation that we've created by some of our draconian measures. That is a problem. Do you think the Democratic constituents of the state of Minnesota are agreeing with their their Democratic leaders on this? Governor Walls is enjoying wonderful approval ratings. It's 75 percent plus. Yeah, somebody shared a graphic with me about all the different governors and the difference in approval ratings. And Newsom, for example, in California was at 42 percent before this, and now he's at 83 percent. Wow. And they saw such a drastic increase. But as everybody knows, and this was early April, as everyone knows, like you said about fear, when people are afraid, they cling to leadership. They just want somebody doing something. They just want to wear masks because they think it's doing something. When you, when there's uncertainty, people are literally willing to do anything to make it feel like there's a solution. And I think in the last month, some of these approval ratings probably have started to go down. And maybe in the next couple months, we'll see that. But certainly in the time of crisis... <clears throat> Leaders are Mm -hmm. going to be praised because people are scared Mm -hmm. and they want to believe somebody's in control. Somebody has this in control and somebody's going to help us find a way out. So let me interject uh, my own in the trenches patient experience because I I've taken care of my patients for 35 years in this community. And so I frequently get the chance to ask my patients that are 85 or 90 or 95. And actually, I'm thinking of another lady who's 103. But when they come into the office and I see them, I ask them. You know, do you like what we're doing? You know, we sort of shut down our economy. We have 650,000 people unemployed. You know, you know, how do you feel about this? And I almost always get the response, boy, don't do this for me. You know, I'm old enough that, you know, whenever it is that I'm going to go, I'm fine with that. I, I just don't want to be without the support and connections I have with my grandkids right. and my daughter or my son. And so they're most fearful of having their support system disrupted, right. their, if you will, their supply chain of hugs and love, mm-hmm. which we're doing. We're doing it left and right. I mean, there's stories every day all around the country mm-hmm. that get to the idea that we're actually quarantining people against their will and it's an absolute quarantine where sometimes they aren't even able to wear their own clothes because those clothes haven't passed the muster so they're wearing someone else's clothes and sometimes i I just put a video out two days ago where this woman she had to wear clothing that she had already soiled and nobody was changing her and her daughter and son-in-law could see her through a glass pane and they couldn't do anything they would not be allowed into this transitional rehabilitation center after she'd had a fall. Is this Mary's mother that you did the video on? Yeah, Mary and Mike. Mm -hmm. And and I know, I've known Mary and Mike for years and my wife's a veterinarian and she takes care of their animals and this just tears our heart out. And this is not a conversation. So I posted that video and within four hours, I'm here at the Capitol and one of the people that helps regulate all that goes on in the Capitol comes up to me and says, Hey doc, I just want to let you know, I, I happened to see on Facebook that video you posted this morning. And I just want to say thank you. He said, mm. you know, it, it was just done and it was sensitive. And I said, but I got to tell you, I live in fear that I'm going to live that myself because my mom is 87 and my dad is 92. And, you know, I, 
I was just touched by his reaching out to me. Mm -hmm. And I was glad that we did the video. But we are putting people through this and we are being unintentionally callous to their needs. Their needs are not to live another five years. Their needs are to whatever amount of time they have left. They want quality. They want Mm -hmm. support. They want love. They want hugs. They want dignity. But for heaven's sakes, let them live. And they don't want to be alone. Right. Right. Amen. Right. Amen. There's been a lot of talk about testing and about we've got PCR tests, we have antibody tests, we've heard of false positives, false negatives. There's been all this talk about testing in order to reopen the economy. What are your thoughts on testing, whether or not they're accurate, and whether or not we should be using them to decide when businesses can open up? Testing is going to be really important, but I think it would have been even more important in the early weeks of this pandemic. Now, I think you could make the case that the horse is out of the barn. The other thing that's problematic is our testing isn't entirely accurate. We've got false positives and false negatives, and we don't have the specificity and sensitivity numbers that we would like. Having said that, if testing is going to be used as a basis for why we should allow aggressive contact tracing, then it's going to be a real problem because now we're starting to see our personal liberties insidiously and slowly extracted from us. Mm -hmm. So testing is something we want, but I think we should try to do it on a voluntary basis and we should have a bill of rights in every state available to patients regarding testing. So the testing means informed consent, signed, the data goes to them, the data is treated like private health information. We cannot let the departments of health disseminate the information about your test to law enforcement agencies around the state, which is what they did in Minnesota. So I think the testing is, it's important. It'll help us, but contact tracing is probably not going to be as successful as we'd like it to be. Contact tracing works better if you're dealing with syphilis or Ebola or a disease that becomes infectious at the time Mm -hmm. of symptoms. This disease becomes infectious well before symptoms present. So we know that we're not going to catch the horse. The horse is going to get out of the barn so easily. What do you think um, people can do, both in your state of Minnesota and nationwide, as a politician? What what do you think people can do that's going to be most effective in order to support their legislators or their local leaders uh, to help, uh, whether they whether they support reopening faster or whether they support shutdown, you know, more prolonged. I mean, what do you think is the most effective step that individual constituents can take in a time of crisis like this, where there's you know uh, states of emergency that are uh, declared nationwide? I would say three things. What people need to do to help is one, engage. Do not let someone else do your thinking for you. Mm -hmm. Engage. Think about it. Number two, don't lock in to one perspective. Demand of yourself that you try to read the other perspective. Demand of yourself to remember what Stephen Covey said where he said, seek first to understand, then be understood. Try to understand why someone doesn't see it the way you do. And then after you've spent some time trying to do that, then if you choose, you can go ahead and try to convince that person of the validity of the perspective you bring to the table. And three, kindness and thankfulness will go a long ways. Without it, we're just a volatile bunch of vehement, vicious people doing and accomplishing exactly what we don't want to do. So I I really think that engage, 
don't lock into one perspective and try to be kind and thankful and it goes a long ways. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the time that you've given. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate your perspective and um, your contribution to this discussion. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you more in the future and good luck to you, uh, Senator Scott Jensen. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Scott. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. And thank you for being committed uh, to trying to expand the conversation so that together we can get through this, get on the other side of this, and somehow redefine whatever that new normal is going to look like in a way that represents the best that we can be. Mm -hmm. Sounds yeah. great. Thanks Amen. again, Scott. Right. Take care. Right. Take, Take care. care. That's pretty impressive, a senator working on a Sunday, actually in session, casting votes. And, I know. I couldn't believe yeah. he was actually in the middle of his <laughs> political work while he was wow. podcasting with us and just showing that sometimes these jobs are never really done and they kind of mm -hmm. intersect and overlap with all sorts of other areas of life. And especially right now, especially right now, yeah, yeah, he said this yeah. is the last day of their session, yeah. that uh, there's so much to be done and there's so many other concerns that are happening that they still have to govern the body. Um, even though we're not really aware of all the stuff that's, you know, going on yeah. right now during this time. Yeah. Well, that was uh, awesome. That was fascinating. I'm learning so much about uh, the politics in other parts of the country. I, I find this uh, very uh, interesting. And, and I had so yeah. many other questions. I hope I we can talk to him again. He's <laughs> so know. intelligent. And I, I love yeah. his um, colloquialisms that he uses. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he really does feel like a small town doctor who yeah. understands people. He is for liberty, for choice, for informed consent, against mandated medicine, right. and uh, as a medical doctor. And it's so great to see people like that voicing their opinions, even if it is, again, unpopular and goes against the grain. And he's definitely somebody on my watch list that I want to keep an eye on because yeah. he's doing great things. Unfortunately, not running for re-election, but right. it'll be, right. hopefully he'll be doing something that continues in politics because I feel like he's a good voice to have that has rational thinking and, and he is willing to look at both sides and have a fair discussion mm -hmm. and not be swayed by political leanings, which yeah. I think is so important. Yeah. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode with him. Yeah, and that was, um, again, Senator Scott Jensen from Minnesota. He's a state, a state senator. And, and also a doctor. Yeah. Super intelligent, yeah. really, really genuine, yeah, yeah. heartfelt yeah. person. You've seen this in his videos. He has a true desire to communicate to people, be there for people, and do the best that he can do. And again, when you've lived multiple years in a profession before you go into politics, and this is what I heard a local politician tell me, uh, you're offering to the legislature and to the public something of value. When you instead go into politics at 20 and 21 years old, like our governor, you become a career politician. You have not worked mm -hmm. in the private sector. You right. have not worked as a business person. You have not worked in a trade. You have not given something to society before you come in and bring that to your citizens and to your constituents. And I think that's where the big problem lies, is we have these career politicians that are literally making their entire professional life based on politics. And when you're in politics, you're absolutely disconnected from the real world. All right. And you've and and like this pol this local politician told me, you've got people making up your mind for you. They're giving you your paperwork of what to think and believe and the points to talk about. The, you know, Scott, Senator Jensen is a perfect example of somebody who literally dedicated decades to a profession. He understands people. He understands how he would like to be treated. Mm -hmm. And he brought that perspective 
into our government. And if only everybody was doing that, we might be having a lot more rational conversations that are based on the needs of people, not the needs of the industry and the lobby that is pushing the legislation. Yeah, and I I can imagine... um... Scott being the kind of politician that's going to make decisions that are going to be best for his constituents, best for the individuals in his practice, in his neighborhood, um, people he knows, the people he represents. And you're right, that's what a someone who has a job and then becomes a politician, that's the kind of politician they're going to be versus someone who's a career politician. They're making decisions that are going to be best for their politics. And, I, and I've, I've shared a couple of videos of his and they've really flown around. People have really enjoyed the way that he speaks and what he talks about. And it's there's no wonder to that yeah. as we talk to him, because yeah. you can see the basis behind him and the authenticity that he offers, which most politicians give you that car salesman feel. Yeah. And they don't feel like somebody you could have as a neighbor. And he really right, does. Yeah. And he feels like a doctor you'd want to go to. Listen to how he describes what he thinks of between the doctor patient relationship. He symbolizes to me the foundation of what medicine should be. It's a shame there aren't more people like him in leadership positions as it relates to this country, as it relates to this epidemic, as it relates to regulatory agencies, because this is the kind of relationship we want to see between people and their medical professionals. He's a perfect example of that. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Maybe I can convince him to get back on another time later. Um, Anyway, thanks for joining us Mm -hmm. today on The Vaccine Conversation with Melissa (laughs) and Dr. (laughs) You forgot the (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Bob. Bob. All right, we'll catch you guys next time. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.